God willing, we'll be dedicating Canuck uh, fan Joseph Yip next week. Yeah. Hey, so um, last week when I asked um, Derek to preach, um, it's one of my favorite Sundays, sometimes even more than Christmas or Good Friday, uh, and that's Pentecost Sunday, and I kind of was wishing I was here. And so I was going through my notes on Pentecost Sundays from the past, and I came across these notes from 2020. And uh, in 2020, Pentecost Sunday was when we first started talking about Wally. So that's three years ago. And I went through the notes from 2020, Pentecost Sunday, about Wally and what uh, we hoped would happen. And as you read the notes, you realize we have no clue what we're supposed to do. And then three years later, you look at Wally and you marvel. And this is a work of God, eh? I mean, I know for sure that I can't take any credit. At least some of you guys who go there can take some credit. But um, sometimes the things that we have been saying, God is saying in this church, may sound very obscure. Um, may not, you may not be able to wrap your hands around it, but in two or three years, God takes the word he's spoken and gives it form, and it becomes flesh. Wally's become flesh. When I look at the notes there and what we had planned, and I think we asked people to go to the corner of 106 and some other road and stand there and pray, and a few people went. That was three years ago. And now to see Wally the way it is, where it can function as a separate church, nuts, man. So um, I was very encouraged uh, that sometimes when God gives us a word uh, about something he's going to do, most of the time, we don't know how he's going to go about it. I definitely have no idea. Um, and yet, he has the power to bring it to pass. And so today, I want to visit something that happened at the beginning of the year. Uh, and that was uh, when we went to, when some of us went to the Hebrides Islands, because we felt that one of the things God wants to do through us is bring about Hebrides 2.0. So for the next little while, for as long as it takes, We'll be talking about Hebrides 2.0. What do you mean by Hebrides 2.0? In the 40s and the 50s, um, these remote islands off the coast of Scotland suddenly um, knew the heavy presence of God, and they didn't know what to do with it. We went to those villages, and I know most of you have heard this, but there are people who've uh, not heard it, so I'm just recapping quickly. Suddenly... Um, Village after village began to feel the tangible, heavy presence of... They, they knew it was something supernatural. They didn't even know how to define it. Many of them had no Christian upbringing, but they grew up in a Judeo-Christian culture. And so what would happen is they would be working in their fields and they would feel this tangible sense of God. And they would run to the closest church or minister or pastor or Christian, and they would be weeping uncontrollably, and they would ask for help. It was not even repentance, because they did not know what to repent of. It was penitence. It was a sense of deep penitence. And so we went to those islands January 6th or 7th, because the Lord had said that would be the first stop this year. So we went there, and it was as barren as you can see it. You go there, and you feel squat. You feel nothing. There's no... There's no vestige or residual 
effect of the revival that happened 40 or 50 years ago. But it shook the world because what started there then began to spread. We met one man who was the son of one of the guys who was critical or pivotal to that revival and he began to talk about the scriptures but he couldn't talk about the revival because his heart was no longer expectant. And most of the work happened among the young, among the 20s and the 30s. And while we were there, and there were people from Bahrain, from Los Angeles, from here, um, God gave a word, and this was the word. That's your cue, uh, Brandon. And this was the word. <laughs> Done. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> that's, a, that's an actual shot of um, this village called Barvis, where the Hebrides revival actually started. This was the word that was given to us to take into the future. Uh, and this was given to us as a church and to the churches that we are connected with saying, this is what I want to do. I don't know when we'll see those guys. But all I can say is if, 20, if three years ago on Pentecost Sunday, God said, I want you to go into this place called Wally and I want you to transform it. And today we look at Wally and we are fascinated by what God has done. Then this too can come to pass. Eh? So... Uh, turn off the lights. It's easier, maybe. Yeah. So here's what the promise was that was given to us, and here's what it says. A purifying fire from heaven that burns up religious and historical junk. That's from Hebrews 12. As the divine warrior, Revelation 19, marches, delivering young men and women, and the emphasis seems to be on the young men and women, delivering them from what? From the nations they come from into the kingdom. Calling sons and daughters into that circle of dancing, of abundance, of joy. Each of these is from scriptures. Yeah, I'll give you the uh, references later. And so they're being drawn into the kingdom, but they're being drawn into the kingdom not as disciples, but as sons and daughters. Into what? Into a circle of dancing, abundance, and joy. Meaning it won't be... Uh, it, 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 won't be, it won't be something that we as a church have experienced. It'll be beyond us. A circle of dancing of abundance and joy. That does not exactly describe us, so we'll have to shift some. Before the lion and the lamb, both. The lion of Judah and the lamb of God. And then it ends with, and they will become a torch-bearing generation that goes forth and will not remain empty, return empty. This is what will happen over the next one, two, three years. I don't know. Any questions on that before we go on? So this was a promise that was given to us. <clears throat> and now looking forward to how this will pan out, eh? And this is not a Hebrides thing, it's a worldwide thing. It'll happen across the world, but we are igniters. And once we ignite things, we take the torch that we ignited with and hand it to others so that they can ignite things too. No one church can do this alone, but he is announcing and igniting this across the earth through us. Any questions? Okay. So over the next few weeks, you can turn the lights back on, guys. Over the next many weeks, we'll take each of these and we'll begin to talk about it. So to it, today we deal with just, uh, we'll just call it Hebrides 2.0, purifying fire. Because that's the first bit. One of the things that really makes me happy about Wally is it's one thing to teach, guys. It's 
It's one thing to get info. It's another thing to apply and see something become flesh. And so I'm praying that even as we learn stuff like this, that it eventually turns into flesh, that it becomes real. So I'm just taking the first sentence today. And the first sentence was, a purifying fire from heaven that burns up religious and historical junk. That's from Hebrews 12, 27 to 29 in the message. A purifying fire from heaven that burns up religious and historical junk. We'll just deal with that. Another word for purifying fire, you can turn that off if you want to, um, Brandon. Another word for purifying fire that the Bible often uses is refiner's fire. That's a more common term that we hear used. Refiner's fire. And the refiner's fire may take many forms. May take many forms. We're not as concerned about the forms right now. We're concerned with the outcome. Other forms can be worship. Sometimes refining happens during worship. Other times it happens because God's glory shows up. These are the these are the incidents in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, where refining happened during worship, as in with Isaiah. And again, because of the glory of God that he sees, he suddenly realizes that he is a man with unclean lips. And then the refinement happens. Sometimes it is through uh, just obeying through very difficult times. Obedience refines. Obedience refines. <coughs> Obedience refines. Through pruning. Pruning begins with God giving instructions. Pruning is not some kind of thing that we should dread. Pruning is basically discipling. Discipling begins with instructions. And if one listens to the instructions, pruning is actually very helpful and produces fruit. And if pruning doesn't work, then there is discipline. Hebrews 12 talks about it as a father dis disciplines his child. And sometimes persecution is used to refine. And what's the intent? The intent is very simple. Till refining happens, till the reflection of the refiner can be seen. As in, his, the purity of his nature can be seen. The purity of the nature of the refiner can be seen. I don't know how true this is, but they asked a silversmith who was refining silver, how do you know when, it'll be re when it is refined? And his response was, when I can see my reflection. So the intent of refining is so that the reflection of the refiner can be seen in the silver or the gold that is being refined. That the purity of his nature is made evident. That is, a, that is the intent of purifying fire or refiner's fire. Yeah, uh, very often uh, Israel would go through persecution and would stick through it. And in the process, uh, that which was shakable would be cast aside and that which remained, the remnant, would be what God would use to spring things again. So there's always been this um, process that God uses throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see it in the uh, letters written to the book uh, to the churches. It'll talk about 
you'll be tested for 10 days. But if you stand, if you overcome, then. And he always, one of the intents of refining is to bring you back to the core remnant so that the original can be maintained, so that there's no hybridization. Refining removes any hybrid or any mutations are removed, comes back to the core. And then once you come back to the core, it can start multiplying after its kind. So persecution is used. Persecution, uh, persecution is God using what the enemy meant for harm for the betterment of the church. God using what the enemy means for harm for the betterment of the church. So when uh, Paul talks about uh, all the things that have helped him die from the outside but increase from the inside, he's talking about whippings and scourgings and beatings and imprisonments and um, near drowning and being exposed to beasts in Rome, what did it do to him? He says that at the end of the day, even though my uh, uh, external tent is dying, internally I'm finding new life. <coughs> and so we must realize the severity or the um, weight of this, that if God is saying that I want to use a purifying fire across the earth, and he wants us to begin the process. He'll first try it out on us. Uh, so it's not something that we dread. It is something that will make us different changes to look like him. And that should be anyways the aim, right? That's always the end goal, huh? to grow into the full stature of Christ. And so um, one of the things with refiner's fire is it always uh, exposes or separates or sieves so it separates the chaff from the grain, um, the dross from the silver. So that's one of the things it does. It, it sieves. The other thing it does is refiner's fire tests. So I'm half looking forward to God testing in this church what is solid and what is not. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, fire will test what you built with. If you have built with gold, great. But if you've built with stone, rubble, straw, then it'll be exposed. It doesn't mean that your salvation is in question or whether you're doing well as a church or not is in question. But I want to expose everything here that is not built with gold that you bought from me. So in a way, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm half looking forward to it because it's always disruptive. So I'm only looking half forward to it. <laughs> so uh, that's one of the things he'll do. Because Fire tests, refining fire tests. And refining fire can be resisted. Refining fire can be resisted. You don't have to accept it. Nineveh accepted refining fire. Capernaum rejected the refiner himself. So we have that choice. Would be foolish to... And by the way, why use refiner fire? Why use purifying fire? Because the one thing Christ is after is a pure bride. Why would he not use it? He's coming for a pure, spotless, blemishless bride. Why would he not use purifying fire? <laughs> Try ironing your clothes with a cold iron. Eh? If you try that, we'll have to call you Stone Cold Don or Stone Cold Derek. Uh, that, that also you wouldn't understand. There was a famous wrestler called Stone Cold Steve Austin. But uh, why would you know stuff like that? Sorry, you have a question about Stone Cold Steve Austin? No, <laughs> sorry. 
Yeah, yeah. How do you know that something that's happening is God and how do you know it's the enemy? Any fire that falls from the enemy will destroy. Will destroy. It will diminish. It will shame. It will harm. It'll, it is never towards building and showing what is true. It is always towards destruction, shame. Uh, you don't come out of it uh, thinking any better of yourself. You come out of it undone. But after you're undone, there is no coal from the altar that touches your lips and makes you clean. You walk around feeling undone. I once had this strange experience. This is anecdotal. It's not meant to prove anything. Where um, I was in a church and I was um, watching Jesus as he showed um, any, na- any part of his nature. Let's say kindness. He would take kindness and he would show me how kind he was. He would take kindness. He would take the word kindness and then he would show me how kind I was. And then he would quickly show me how kind Jesus was. And every time he did that, I would burst into tears. Because I could see the gap. Yet at the end of it, when I got up to my feet and walked away, I didn't walk away thinking, I'm a useless, unkind, terrible guy. I got up thinking, oh my God, this is the God that I'm supposed to pursue. That was in 1993. You, didn't, you don't come away from it feeling uh, shabby or worse off. And so, it's an odd kind of fire. It does not destroy the bush. Yeah. <coughs> But it sets it alight. So, when you look at the purifying fire thing, uh, purifying fire, what's the intent? Can we now begin to get to a place where we reflect the purity of his heart? So, here are three or four things that we will need to uh, have happen to us. This is proof that purifying fire is at work. One, Purifying fire will end up with us recognizing his claim of ownership. Recognizing his claim of ownership. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says he bought us, he ransomed us, he paid a price. So one of the things that will happen if purifying fire actually begins to work in our lives, in my life, in your life, is that we will begin to recognize his claim of ownership. Most of us are leasing our lives to God. Even though he's purchased it, we lease it. Most of us don't always, in everything, think that he owns us. We choose when to lease our lives to him. I've never owned a car. I've always leased a car. I know how it works. On the insurance papers, it says, belongs to the name of the company that leases me and belongs to me. Both names are on. The claim of ownership is different. We are leasing to him. I decide when I own myself and I decide when he owns me. And I decide when he owns me. This will have to change, eh? because if you have property, then you can have, you need to have legal ownership. He has legal ownership. If you have property, at least in those days, you had to have a single user who possessed legal claim. And if you have property, 
the value at which the property is sold. The value at which the property was exchanged depends on how valuable the property was to both parties. You're God's property. There must be a legal claim. Jesus has a legal claim on your life. Satan had a legal claim on your life. That legal claim was settled. Sin requires payment. Satan had a legal claim. That legal claim was settled. God pays. Second, it's a single user who possesses the legal claim. It's not uh, multiple users. He has single user claim over my life. I cannot lease it to him when I want, cannot hold it back when I want, in every area. I was driving here today and I was thinking of a picture that I wanted to put up. I saw it on some website. I was gonna send it to Brandon. And I had this thought in my mind. Um, what gives you uh, the right to take someone else's property that they have actually uh, taken a shot of and put on the website? What gives you the right? And why is it, Jacob, that you can flip so easily from uh, being very Christian to not worrying about copyright. Every time we do things that are not God, we are deciding that we will not abide by His ownership. His ownership requires that we function a certain way. Every time I choose not to, every time I skirt around things, I suddenly begin to lease. As in, in this area of God you have ownership, but in this area you do not. In decision-making, it is the same. In this area of God, you have ownership. You can tell me what you want, and I'll do it. In this area, you do not. I'm the one who makes choices here. This is why ownership is the end of self-determination. Ownership is the end of self-determination. Salvation is ownership. Ownership is the end of self-determination. It's crazy. Salvation is ownership. Someone owns you. But ownership is the end of self-determination. And the third one I really was uh, touched by, that um, the value at which property was exchanged is the value that both parties were willing to pay. And th th that just puts such a different spin on it. That f to, for me to be bought, the value that was demanded was the value of the son, and it was paid. That's a high price. That's a high price. The value at which the property was exchanged depends on how valuable the property was to both parties. I was very valuable. These are the reasons why I cannot lease myself to the one who owns me. Purifying fire will help us recognize this absolute claim of ownership over us. And once that happens, you'll find that there's a spontaneity of obedience. There's a spontaneity of obedience. Of healing, of new life. That breaks out like a fountain. Huh? You'll find that. 
In Genesis 22, you find that uh, ownership was a reason. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 5 or 6 or thereabouts, is where you see the first act of worship. And what is the first act of worship? Abraham takes his son Isaac, takes him up a mountain, puts him on an altar, and offers him to God. What is he offering? He's offering his entire person. He's offering himself. He's offering himself unreservedly. This is why in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, it is only a reasonable act of worship to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So what we are saying here is that when, God, when we recognize God's claim of ownership over our lives, you'll find a strange thing happening. You will unreservedly begin to offer yourself all the time, every time, all of you. That is what purifying fire does. I am not at that place. Just yesterday morning I was telling the Lord, I mean I wasn't even going to teach this, but yesterday morning I was telling the Lord, Father, you know, you really don't have full ownership over me. I take it back so often and I decide how things are going to be. On one hand I know He is Lord of my life. On one hand I know He loves me. I love Him back. I, on one hand I know I'm doing my best to, not I'm not, I'm not doing my best, I'm doing all, a lot to run after him, but I can take back ownership whenever I want. That free choice is given me. God will never take that away. But I do. I do. I take back ownership. Any questions, guys? Any questions? What would it be not to take back ownership? What would it be not to lease myself to God? Different areas, guys. In your marriage, do you take back ownership from God? In your finances? In your work? In following the laws of the land? In how you think? In what you watch? In standards, moral standards? In relationships? In church? In mission, in calling that is on your life, in the use of time, treasure, talent, strength, pace of growth, self-determination, as in I'll decide what needs to happen. Affordable sin, small time sin, not big time. I mean, the list is endless. You suddenly realize how often you take back ownership. Habits, attitudes that I afford myself. So what are we saying? What am I saying? I'm saying that if I began to recognize his legal ownership over me, his claim of ownership over me, I will not go into this eyes wide shut. I'll become aware that, ah, shucks, in this area you have ownership. Therefore, I will not be able to do what I want to do, even though I can do it if I want. I'll choose not to. How much do you belong to him? How much do I belong to him? Any questions, guys? Purifying fire helps you recognize his absolute ownership over you. Um, there's a word that most people don't use now. Uh, we exchange this word for the word servant. But the actual word used for us as sons 
are slaves. We are, we are called slaves. We use the word servants just to make it sound more culture. The actual word used in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word slave. A slave has no rights. A slave belongs to his master. A slave's family belongs to his master too. A slave is utterly dependent on the benevolence of his master. A slave does not get paid because a slave is owned. This is what ownership looks like. And ways to affect every area because every area of the slave now belongs to the master. The only way a slave escapes his master is by dying. That's how we escape the power of sin. Now we belong to one who lives and we will not die. So we are sons who choose. A mature son is one who is constantly moving towards servanthood. And Christians claim, oh, I'm the son, child of a king and all. That's very nice. And it's very charismatic, but it doesn't help the cause of the kingdom. Because Jesus could have done that and sat on the throne and had the angel singing forever and ever after. Any questions? I'm not saying don't think son, eh? You have to think son before you can think servant. But it is necessary to move towards slave. Any questions? The other thing ownership does, and then we'll move on. Ownership is dependence. Ownership is dependence. If he owns me, I'm utterly dependent on him. I become utterly dependent on him. For life, for choices, provision, protection, satisfaction, joy, healing, expectation. Everything is now dependent on it. Ownership is dependency. And so at some point today, if you can, or some point this week, if you can, say yes to his purchase of you. I say yes, O oh God, to your purchase of me. My mind, my body, my hands, my legs, my eyes, my mouth, my thinking, my feet, my sexuality, my emotions. I say yes to your purchase of me. There is nothing that is now outside of that purchase. I know how valuable I was to you. I know what was exchanged in my place. I fully belong to you. I cannot keep leasing this life to you when I want and then withdraw it when I want. I cannot do that. This is when clay becomes the kind of clay that can be put, put back on the potter's wheel and spun around again. It's clay that it's malleable, it's shapeable. Purifying fire does that. Any questions? Any arguments? Anything you disagree with? Uh, some of us may. Paul probably was getting there. Yeah, so Paul is not some special kind of guy. I mean, if there was a gone guy who, who should have struggled with guilt every so often 
and who was tormented by what he did, it was Paul. And so uh, we mustn't think of Paul as exceptionally. I mean, I used to think Elijah was exceptional till you read James chapter 5 and you realize he was ordinary. But Paul pursued. So, yes, some of us may get somewhere close to looking like Christ so that others have someone to imitate. And I pray God that it be you. The question was, maybe all of us won't reach uh, this uh, level of recognizing his claim of ownership over us in this lifetime. Yeah, will any of us? <laughs> Look what you started, Don. <laughs> will any of us reach this place? I'm saying that some of us may. And if you do, then people have someone to imitate. Okay, next one. Purifying fire brings you to a place where you will just one thing. And that is treasuring God. You will just one thing. You will just one thing. Purifying fire brings you to a place where treasuring God becomes that one singular thing you are after, which will never be taken away from you. The one singular thing you're after, which is treasuring God. Always remember that most, most battles, most battles are fought at the treasuring level of life, at the treasuring level of life. Most battles are fought at the treasuring level of life. That's where most battles are fought. There are no battles when there is no um, conflict over treasure. Every time there's a conflict in your heart, it is only because you have two treasures that you now have to fight for. That's where the conflict is. If there are no such treasures you're fighting, if there's only a singular treasure, there is no conflict. James chapter 4 talks about it. Why is it that we have quarrels? Why do we have fights? Because we desire things. Hinduism, Buddhism, what do they suggest we do? That we, uh, that we empty ourselves of desires, which is absurd. We were made with desires. What we need to do is not empty ourselves of desire, but desire one thing, of unsurpassing worth. Philippians 3.8 called Christ. And so, most battles happen at the treasuring level. And what your heart treasures, what your heart treasures, what your heart treasures, or tramples, what your heart treasures or tramples at any moment, at any moment, is what your mouth speaks, is what your mouth speaks, your mind thinks, your eyes see, your feet either move towards or away from. 
your feet move towards or away from. So we don't realize how critical this is to our existence. And if we can get this right, so much aligns. Because whatever I treasure or trample is how my mouth will speak, my mind will think, my eyes will see, my feet will walk towards or walk away from. It just depends on what I treasure. Be it sin or be it something virtuous, this is how it works. And so whenever, so, so in other words, uh, if Christ isn't, if Christ isn't my supreme treasure, if Christ isn't my supreme treasure, at that moment, he ceases to be what I'm pursuing. So let's say in the next 20 seconds, Christ is no longer the supreme treasure in my life. The moment he ceases to be supreme treasure, at that moment I'm no longer pursuing him because something else replaces him. Purifying fire brings you to will just one thing. Nothing else. One of the strange things with what you treasure is what you treasure frees you from competing offers. Let's say um, you treasure everything Elon Musk does. And Google comes and offers you. Microsoft offers you. Um, the Facebook guy comes personally to offer you a job. But because you treasure Elon Musk, all competing offers are no longer attractive. So what you treasure frees you from competing offers. What you treasure frees you from competing offers. So when you begin to treasure Christ, it frees you from all other offers. All other offers are still present. They'll be offered to you, but they no longer carry the ability to pull you away. Guys, sometimes we treasure lies, eh? Sometimes we treasure lies. All strongholds are built on lies. All strongholds in our lives have been built on lies. Behind every stronghold, I'm talking about um, ungodly strongholds, behind every stronghold is a lie. And sometimes, tr some, sometimes we treasure lies. And you wonder why the knowledge of the truth is not setting you free. When the knowledge of the truth is not setting me free, I must go examine the lies that bind me. When the knowledge of the truth is not setting me free, I must go examine the lies that bind me. 
The knowledge of the truth is supposed to set me free, but why is it that I'm hearing the knowledge of the truth but I'm not being set free? It's because sometimes I've believed a lie so deeply that I need to go pull out the lie from the substructure before anything can be built on me. It's like that has become so embedded in my foundation that I have to reach out and pull it out. Otherwise, nothing grows. And all of us have some lie or the other in our lives that, have, that is so embedded that it doesn't matter how much truth is spoken, it never seeds. I mean, I'm watching construction happen near my place and uh, in the place I used to live in before was the gas station. And when they had to redo the gas station, it was so much work, man, because they had these huge gas tanks that carry gas and it just discolors the soil. You have to dig it up, you have to literally bring in new soil because those tanks have been there for so long that the gas and the soil have become, it's impossible to do anything there. You've got to dig deep to get it out, and then you build something new over it. Sometimes this is important, eh? That when the knowledge of the truth is not setting you free, begin to examine the lies that are binding me. And the Holy Spirit will help, because one of the Holy Spirit's greatest desires is to help you treasure Christ. One of the Holy Spirit's greatest desires or greatest pleasures is can I help you treasure Christ? And he likes cultivating an, an exclusiveness towards Christ. We read about this in James chapter 4 where he says, don't you know that the Spirit of God yearns jealously over you? In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 it says, don't you, Paul is talking now and Paul says on behalf of God, don't you know that I betrothed you to one as a chaste virgin? As in, it is the Spirit of God has great pleasure in helping me treasure Christ. He wants to cultivate exclusivity with Christ because at his very essence, God is jealous. It's a great quality that God has. If he wasn't jealous, it'd be terrible, eh? Sorry? Yeah, jealousy, God's jealousy is the kind of jealousy that will not control but is possessive. It is possessive but it will, will not control. It will not control, it will not take away free will, it will not um, use force to do harm to bring a person back. You see this in the Hosea story. So there is Gomer who Hosea is married to and she goes around sleeping with others and he says, let her go. You lavished her, she was your wife, she's run after others. Let her go, but pray a hedge around her. Pray a hedge so that she cannot chase after her lovers, her lovers can't find her. And she will soon say, let me return to my husband who loved me. And he says, this is how I treat Israel. If it wasn't for God's jealousy over Israel, Israel would have been lost long ago. If it wasn't for his jealousy over you, you and I would have perished long ago. If not perished, we would have gone askew long ago. But here is a God who is possessive, and yet his possessiveness does not control or take away free will or lock us up or threaten us. But the jealousy keeps us, brings us back on track, brings us back on track. It's the nature of a father. It's the nature of a spouse. This is why God has no problems using spousal parables or fatherly parables to talk about his possessiveness. Sorry? How does God display jealousy? Um, 
So Phoebe is not obviously not my child, uh, but uh, if someone, if I saw someone messing around with her or trying to harm her, why is it that I would go to protect her? It is because there's a love that is jealous over her that no harm should come to her. It rises up in you. You don't want any harm to come to her. Some of the scriptures in the Bible like, you are the uh, apple of my eye. Where does that come from? That, listen, I am so jealous and possessive over you that even if someone comes near you, uh, I'll make sure I protect you. It's a possessiveness that protects. It will not allow harm. It would rather die than let harm come to you. That is a jealous God. Oprah got it all wrong. She turned away from the God of the Bible because she heard that God was jealous. For a woman who reads so many books, she could have read a little more and figured it out. <laughs> Sorry, that was just sidetracking. But I, I just find it so absurd that someone with a book club could not understand the word jealous. We did a teaching on jealous. If God wouldn't be jealous, my God, He would let us be. But His love is jealous. Thank God. Yeah. What you treasure, you protect. What you treasure, you honor. What you treasure, you protect. What you treasure, you honor. Now you can see why Jesus is asking Peter, one of his favorite disciples, by the way. He's asking Peter, do you love me more than these? What is the intent there? He wants to establish treasure. He's asking, he's asking Peter, do you love me more than this? And he asks us the same question sometimes every day. Do you love me more than the work you're doing? Do you love me more than the shortcut you're taking? Do you love me more than the taxes you're scrimping on? Do you love me more than the um, other things you're doing? Do you love me more than Acts 29? Do you love me more than ministry? Do you love me more than Wally? Do you love me more than worship? The questions are always there because the treasure must be established. The treasure is very simple. This is also why he wants you to sell everything for this treasure because it's so priceless that you cannot have it till you sell everything. I know you've heard this before, but again, because some haven't, I'll just quickly go over it. There was a man who stumbles across a treasure in a field that he was walking through. He knows that according to the law, he cannot take what is in the box that he stumbled over because it belongs to somebody else, because the field belongs to somebody else. So he goes home. He hides it so that nobody else finds it. That is how we are jealous over things. Eh? One of the things we should do about things of God is you should be so jealous about the things of God that you should hide it so that you can find it. And so he hides it and then he goes. And what does he do? He sells everything. He sells all the wealth he has. He sells his reputation, sells his dignity, sells whatever is required. What do you need to sell to get this treasure? Sell it. Because once you know what you are after, there will be no competing offers that can begin to create conflict. Sell everything. You do that for your spouses sometimes. You will travel miles. You'll go to Portland.
See, that's how this works. You sell everything, and then you sell everything, and what do you do? You buy the field. You don't buy the treasure, you buy the field. Because you cannot buy just the treasure, you have to buy the entire package. You can't take Jesus, I really like you as a healer. Yahweh Jireh, Yahweh Rapha, you are my God. No, Yahweh Rapha doesn't come separate from Yahweh Jireh, Yahweh Shama, Yahweh Rohi. He is all Yahweh, self-existent one. <laughs> Either have all of him, you can't have just a bit of him. This is why Paul asks in Philippians 3.8, hey, do you count everything else as rubbish, Jacob? In comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord. Next one, purifying fire. Derek, you're keeping uh, an eye on time, right? I know the preaching is so good, you don't want to get up and go. But you do have to go to Victoria. Purifying fire uh, will eventually lead to representation. If purifying fire touches you, it will lead to representation. What is representation? It's the fearful privilege of representing the king of glory. It is a fearful privilege of representing the king of glory. Purifying fire always does that, and we'll talk about that. Very simple. Because we like encouraging people, uh, and we should, uh, we don't think that representing him is a um, weighty task. We see it as anybody and everybody can do it, and that's true. If you were the ambassador of Canada to Indonesia or to the United States, uh, that's great, but you usually won't send your six-year-old son to meet Biden. Because even though you're um, the ambassador and the boy is the ambassador's son, you won't usually send it because you need a degree of maturity. Why? Because you're representing a nation. We don't understand the weighty responsibility or the fearful privilege. I like the words fearful and privilege. On one hand, it's a privilege. On the other hand, there should be fearful privilege of representing it. So God's prime concern, surprisingly, God's prime concern is not with sin, at least when it comes to believers. God's prime concern is not with sin, but with representation. He is concerned about sin Because of representation. It's not as complicated as it sounds. He, his desire is, hey, now that I've called you to myself, I've separated you, I've separated you so that I can send you back into the world so they may see me. I'm more concerned now with representation. I'm not as concerned with sin. The reason I'm concerned about sin is so that when you go out there, you better not sin because you're representing me. So his, his concern is not, his prime concern is not with sin. Oh, I didn't put the word sin there. His prime concern is not with sin, but representation. Can I send you out as an accurate representative of me? That's my prime concern. The reason I'm even 
thinking about sin is because when you go out there, if you sin, you don't represent me. So please, can we stop? Because if you do, you can represent me accurately. Purifying fire helps us represent him better. Because there's very little chaff and dross left. Because the silver begins to reflect the refiner. And so, and you can't really represent God. You can only surrender to him and he can use you. You can't turn up and say, Jesus, you know what, I'll represent you. No, it's usually not that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Peter tried that, didn't work out very well. Uh, he said, before the cock crows three times, you will deny me. But you can surrender yourself to him so that he can take what you're giving sacrificially, intentionally, and say, all right, I'll, let, I'll, I'll, I'll use you to represent me. That's all we can give him, eh? Romans 12 gets more and more powerful as you get older. Um, present your bodies as living sacrifice. And this is only reasonable. So that he can wear it and go where he wants and use your mouth to say what he wants. So let's go beyond just being purified from sin. Purifying fire will take this church from beyond just being, it'll take us beyond purity from sin. It'll take us beyond purity from sin to purity in attitude, core values, aspirations. It'll take us beyond purity from sin. Purity from sin was what the Puritans were aiming for. And in the end, that whole moment, movement kind of backfired. It changed into the holiness movement. And then it got dreadful after a while. It started off well, but we're not just looking for purity from sin. We're looking for something beyond that. It's called, yeah, like blazing purity. Where it's no longer a sin thing. So here's a question. In representing Jesus, uh, please try and answer this. Eh? Uh, please try and answer this. In representing Jesus, what area of my life can't I present yet publicly? In representing Jesus, what area of my life can I, can't I present publicly? What area of my life can't I present publicly yet? I can't present it publicly. It's got way too much contamination in it. And don't get stuck with sexual stuff only. Eh? The sexual stuff is an outworking of a whole lot of other things. Habits, addictions are often the result of other things. But at the end of the day, just ask yourself this question. And I will ask myself. I didn't want to ask ahead of time. I wanted to ask with you. So I'm going to go home tonight and today and ask, in representing Jesus, what area of my life can't I present yet? This is a frightening line, and it's not mine. Um, representation must get you to a place where those you stand before 
Did I offend you guys? <laughs> I asked for it. <laughs> Thank God you guys are not mic'd. <laughs> Representation must get to a place where those you stand before find themselves in the presence of God. I'd say to you that some of you have areas in your life where this happens, eh? So don't, don't diss yourself uh, as in, uh, no, no, there's no such area. No, I've, I've seen it where in your lives, uh, there are areas in your life where the way you behave, one would be standing in the presence of God because you're trying to reflect His nature as close as possible. Representation must go to a place where those you stand before find themselves in the presence of God. And it'll be in the areas that you think you're not good at, eh? I've had people come and sometimes tell me, hey, um, this is what I experienced when I was with you. And I'm thinking to myself, that is not the way I think of myself. Sometimes people see things in you that you don't see yourself. Because who are the people that are most severe on you? You. Who beats you up most? You. Nobody can beat you up better than you beat yourself up. I never win when I wrestle with me. <laughs> Am I a daily letter from Christ? Am I a daily letter from Christ? Second Corinthians 3.2. Paul says about the Corinthians, after writing 22 chapters on how messed up they were, he then says to them that, hey, you are a letter. When people read you, they see Christ. So if you can say that about Corinthians... I'm sure God can say that about Acts 29 because we haven't messed up as much. At least not if you compare it to the things that the Corinthians did. The point being that many of us are letters that are ready. But the question is, are you daily a letter that Sheldon reads and he says, my God, Jane is like Jesus. Sorry, you were sitting right up front. Okay, let's end with the last one. Um, purifying fire consumes cultural, historical, religious, soulish junk. That's how the message puts it in Hebrews twelve twenty seven. Purifying fire consumes cultural, historical, religious, and soulish junk. It just consumes it, doesn't let it stand. And so it should be. I pray God that as we teach this, God will test us. And as he tests us, hey, you guys are still here. Either leave or come back in. <laughs> wow, the husband's coming back in. <laughs> yes. Alrighty, as a special offer, we let you uh, give a second offering. Yeah, yeah. Pardon? <laughs> so, purifying fire consumes cultural, historical, religious, and soulish junk. In other words, it um, consumes 
or shakes itself free, whichever way you want to look at it, or shakes itself free from old wineskins. Old wineskins are basically old operating systems, old mindsets, old clannish behavior, old denominational behavior, worldviews. Uh, Hal Lindsay stuff. Nothing wrong with it, but if you're still thinking that the late great planet Earth is going to happen, it may not happen immediately. Uh, don't, don't even go there. Just forget what I said. Erase the last bit. Eh? It was not important. So it consumes or shakes itself up from old wineskins. That's one thing purifying fire does. And it'll happen here. And I pray God that he tests us on it. So that anything that should be shaken, should be let go, will be let go. We can't hold on to things when God is moving forward. It is a mistake that the Old Testament and New Testament and ever since churches have been making what God was doing, they hold on to when God is doing something new. We've got to let go. And may we be shaken there. Eh? There are things in this church that are, it's time to let go. There are things in my life that I have to let go. It's an old wineskin, an old method of operating. It's uh, usually done or accomplished by God uh, through change, through unfamiliar situations, being put in unfamiliar situations. These are the methods he uses. And through the scalpel of the Word, the Spirit, and the people of God. It's a three-pronged scalpel. These are the methods he uses to change old wineskins. What is a wineskin? Yeah, later, Derek. What is a wineskin? This is your wineskin. This is your wineskin, you're thinking. This is your wineskin. This is your wineskin. If this wineskin doesn't change, no new God thoughts can be poured. This is the wineskin. Old wineskins doesn't mean old people. I have met more young people with old wineskins than old people with old wineskins. The old people sitting in this room have had to change much more than you guys. We didn't have phones. I'm not even talking about a cell phone. We didn't even have a phone at home. Our TVs were black and white. You don't know how rapidly we've had to adjust. There were no microwaves. There was no automatic car. There was nothing called Bluetooth. Bluetooth was when you colored it blue. So, I could go on. I was thinking of things with Facebook. Oh, no, we won't go there. One of the things with old people is uh, their jokes get a little dad jokes, so I've got to stop before it gets there. Yeah. Um, so, w this is the wineskin, guys. This is the wineskin. This is the thinking. If this thinking doesn't change, no new revelation of God, no new wine is poured into you. And this must change. And to change this, historical junk 
religious junk, traditional junk, denominational junk, cultural junk will have to be shaken. How is it shaken? Through change, through unfamiliar situations you are placed in, through the three-pronged scalpel of the word, the spirit, and the people of God. This is what God uses, has always used. Any questions? Yeah, so um, when, when we are resistant to change, and most of us begin our lives resistant to change, but if you uh, are exposed to change over and over again, you get more accustomed to it. But if I am resistant to change, then you have to do everything in your power to make it easy for me to change. You have to walk with me into the change. And if after all that I resist, you have to come back to me three months from now, four months from now, and try again. This is what we do with our children. We take them to, I mean, I remember taking this kid and he wouldn't, all I wanted him to do was walk into the elevator by himself. I believe you're not supposed to do that, but that's not the point. I wanted him to brave, be brave enough to walk into an elevator without holding my hand. And it didn't matter what I did, the kid wouldn't go in because he had heard horror stories of kids being jammed between the doors, which never happens, but that's what parents tell you. And so eventually, eventually, uh, I had to walk with him. And over a period of time, he began to dare it himself, knowing that Jacob would be right behind me and would take care of me. Change will be resisted unless you are used to it. When change is resisted, you have to go just like with your children and help them. And when they resist, you have to back off and start again. I recently watched a dad Or I should find you if you're resistant and try to help you. Sometimes we have to look for... Guys, we're supposed to do this together. So if I find that Diana is resistant to change and she disguises it well, I must still go and find situations where I can help her with change. We must both look for help and we should look for those that need help. It's both. It's not one or the other. We should look for help, but we should also look for those that need help and who will not let on. We're not waiting for our child to ask us for help. We look for the child who needs help and we go help. I saw a dad who's a um, guy who's like literally like Dr. Doolittle, uh, helping his son with horses. It is fascinating watching him. He's got three sons and one son is a little scared of horses. But the way he went about it, and change is scary eh? because you get on the wrong end of a horse and uh, you can go flying without the horse. And so, uh, so he had to make sure that the child is positioned correctly. He wanted the child to hold the reins right up where the bit and bridle is so you can hold the horse. There was a way to feed the horse. But the way the dad went about encouraging the horse, in the end, the boy was on the horse. I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, wow. A boy who was resistant to sitting on a horse is now desiring to sit on a horse. So the only way we go through change is this way. And when all else, fail, all else fails and you're really stubborn and resistant and uh, uh, full of yourself, then God uh, uses his favorite weapon, which is jealousy. And this is how God uses jealousy. He'll send a wave 
that will dislodge your boat from the safe mooring that you refuse to let go of, and the wave will carry you on the ocean of his love into the deep where you suddenly realized that, oh, shucks, what do I do now? One way or the other, because he is jealous over you, he will get you to where you need to get to, only you'll have less time to do it because you spent too many years moored to the port. God will always keep you moving. One of the things about his jealousy is he will get you moving. The only difference is you may not get to the destined end that he had planned because you've run out of time. But he'll always keep you moving. These are the things that happen with purifying fire. One, a recognition of his claim of ownership. Two, a singular thing, treasuring him. Three, able to represent him accurately because sin is no longer an issue because the purifying fire consumes it. Four, historical, religious, cultural, and soulish junk being burnt up. And now you always have a new vessel that's forged through change, through the scalpel of the word, the spirit, and the people of God, and through unfamiliarity. You become a, you become a wineskin that Jesus can always pour new wine into. New things, new things, new things. Continuously pouring new things. And if you don't change your wineskin, then here's the flip part. You will at some point resist the move of God, and you will resist the generation that's coming after you. Just remember that. Many of us who refuse to change will become the enemies of change. There is no middle ground when there is a refusal to change. Please hear that again. There is no middle ground when there is a refusal to change. Every time you refuse to change, you will become the enemy of those that are changing. You will resist them. It's only a matter of time. Cool. And why did I say the scalpel of the Spirit, the Word, and the people of God? Isaiah 65, 8, beautiful scripture, it says that the wine is found in the cluster, not in a single grape. The wine is found in the cluster, so do not destroy it. It's, it's, the, it's this three-pronged scalpel, eh? The Word, the Spirit, and the people of God. Remove one of them, and it collapses. The wineskin is not formed. It's all three. Let's pray and end. I know I'm supposed to do communion and Heidi brings communion every week and then she packs it and keeps it for next week. We'd have finished earlier had Tuni not lost his voice. Yeah, Let's pray. Father, um, part of the reason I'm excited about uh, not this message but excited about this series is because of what you will now do. One of the things you told Israel to do was always walk into the future looking back. We've talked about that. They would walk into the future looking back. They would literally walk backwards. They could see all that God has done and they would look at it and they say, this God did, this God did, this God did. Why should we be afraid of the future? They would walk into the future 
looking back. And so we walk into this future, looking at Wally, looking at other promises, looking at this place you gave us that we are now releasing. We want you, oh God, to do these things in our midst. There's no other reason for being a church but to be everything that you want us to be. So we go over that list one last time, Brandon, if you can just put it up, and say yes to this, oh God. Your hands are gentle. Your hands do not harm. Your fire does not destroy. And so we look at it and say, let this begin with us, and then let it spread across the earth, that you, oh God, will, are going to, have begun sending a purifying fire from heaven that will burn up all the religious and historical junk in our lives, that you will lead us as a divine warrior marching ahead of us. You'll teach us how to war. In the process, you will deliver young men and women from many nations into the kingdom. And you will bring them into the kingdom as sons and daughters. And you'll draw them into a circle of dancing, of abundance and joy uh, that we haven't really uh, experienced. It's not natural for us. We do burst into it occasionally, but it's still not part of our DNA. We'd like to become like that so that we can show them. And that they would do this before the lion and the lamb. They would both know the one who was crucified and the one who rose like a lion, not one or the other. And that they would become a torch-bearing generation that goes forth and will not return empty. So we as a church say, thank you for this rich privilege. It is so overwhelming that it must be you. It is so overwhelming that only you can do it. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. Hey, this would not be possible if we didn't all do this together. Eh? Sometimes when you look back now, 17, 18 years later, it's magnificent. So thank you. Thank you. If you need prayer, uh, someone has arranged for people to be out front here and they'll pray with you. And uh, God will respond because he said so. <laughs>